Praised be Jesus Christ, and peace be with you. Once again, I am up before the dawn recording this podcast. Um, And again, it is a day late. I'm sorry about that. It's very early Saturday morning right now, February 22nd. And I am in the thick of it. (laughs) I'm in the midst of a discernment retreat that we're hosting here at St. Patrick's Seminary. Um, I mentioned it over the past couple weeks of the podcast because I've been preparing for it (laughs) along with a team of my seminarian brothers. But now, at last, uh, the time is upon us. And uh, the retreat is much larger than what we expected. Um, As we were doing our initial preparations, we had around 20 discerners who had applied to come on this retreat. And then during this past week, as we were kind of finalizing everything, the number almost doubled. (laughs) And so we skyrocketed to 36 uh, discerners who are here right now, staying in the seminary. So we're pretty much full of capacity. All of our empty rooms, um, except for maybe one or two, are, 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 are occupied. They all arrived last night. And uh, it, it's, it's been hectic. The first night was a bit chaotic, but really not overly so. Um, just kind of the <laughs> usual expected chaos when, uh, you know, you have so many guests coming into the house. Uh, and some arrived late and, you know, so I think we had to deal with some little details like that. But mostly things went off without a hitch. Uh, we had a nice tour of the seminary, Vespers. We prayed together. First conference of the weekend. The conferences are being given by the Bishop of Spokane, Washington, who <clears throat> made a special trip down, as he, as he does almost every year, to lead this retreat, which is very nice. So we are progressing onward. <laughs> Today is day two. The retreat goes until Sunday noon. And um, yeah, and I'm up recording this early because at about seven o'clock, we are going to be having confessions. And um, of course, I'm not hearing the confessions, <laughs> but uh, our seminarian uh, discernment retreat team is going to be out there in the front of the chapel directing our discerners as to where to go because our seminary is very large and very confusing <laughs> and the chapel we use for confessions is in an, a, a difficult to find location so we need to be there directing traffic as it were and um, yeah and it should be a nice quiet time at least until we have morning prayer and mass at eight o'clock and then breakfast and then the day gets rolling So we have a lot of activities today. We have more conferences. We have a seminarian panel where some of our brothers will share their own vocation stories and experiences. Um, We'll have small groups tonight for the discerners. And uh, yeah, so things are going pretty well. As I said, it has been a bit overwhelming. Not, Not even so much yesterday, but the preparations for the retreat have just been just been a real burden. I've been really blessed though to have a good team. I have, uh, besides myself, two other seminarians who are kind of uh, the leader, co-leaders, you could say, for the retreat. One of them in particular has just really stepped up and done an amazing job. And so I, I'm, I'm really, I'm very blessed and I'm very grateful. If I was doing this all on my own, I think I would have pulled out all of my hair before, before this morning. <laughs> But uh, no, they've been great. They've really, 
they've really been very helpful. And so things are going well. We're praying for all of these men. And if you're listening to this podcast, just say a little prayer for them as well. They are able to um, hear the voice of the Lord calling them. And they're able to discern serenely and confidently where He wants them to be in order to come to know and love Him better and to share His love with the world. You know, um, part of what I sort of feel called to talk about today is what to do about discouragement and what to do about um, moments of what St. Ignatius would call desolation, times when it can take effect in a variety of different forms and different areas of our life. But for example, in the interior life, when your prayer becomes dry, um, when you no longer feel a clear sense of mission, when your uh, motivation to act has totally dried up. (laughs) In the exterior life, it can take the form of seemingly insurmountable obstacles which are placed before you, such that you don't see how in the world you could attain to your goals. I'm speaking in generalities so that this will apply to people as broadly as possible, you know. It can take the effect of uh, failures to communicate or failures in relationship, a number of different things. The characteristic that all these different forms of desolation or discouragement, if you will, have in common is that they tend to lead to an interior state of not trusting in the Lord. And, and this, is, this is the interesting thing about desolation. Now, I'm not saying that desolation is exactly the same as not trusting in the Lord. Everyone goes through periods of consolation and desolation. And what distinguishes the saints from the rest of us is that the saints, when they go through these periods of desolation, their trust in the Lord is is unshaken. That's what makes them saints. (laughs) And that's what what we're called to. We're called to that that steady sailing. Whatever happens on the interior seas of our life, whatever storms may shake the ship of our soul, to just be able to calmly go, to keep going. But very often, for those of us who have not yet attained the perfection of sanctity, <laughs> these experiences of desolation can, can shake our confidence in the Lord. They can cause us to doubt. One great example of this in the scriptures comes from, I believe, the very end of Mark chapter 4. And I think it's in the other synoptic gospels as well. But we happen to be reading Mark this year in, uh, in the Mass, you know, in our lectionary. So I'm thinking in terms of Mark. And in Mark chapter 4, you know, Jesus has been healing these crowds that are gathered around on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the crowds have been pressing in on him. And he's performed many, many healings. And he's been teaching about the kingdom of God. And then he instructs the disciples to get, get in the boat and go. They're going to go sail across the Sea of Galilee late at night or early, early in the morning, much like today. <laughs> And they're going to go over to the other shore. They've so far been ministering, you know, in Judea. Uh, And now they're going to go over into the country of the pagans, of the Greeks. 
um, this country called the Decapolis, which means the Ten Cities. It's on the other shore from Judea, and it's, it's pagan country. <laughs> it's, it's, an, it's an unclean territory for the Jews. But Jesus wants to go there. And so to begin announcing the kingdom of God, even to those who are outside of the boundaries of the Jewish people, God's chosen people from the beginning. But interestingly, as they're going across the sea, and it's, again, it's dark, it's probably the very wee hours of the morning, um, kind of the last watches of the night, and there's an incredible storm which breaks across the sea. And you all know this story. There's this, there's this huge storm, and the disciples who are in the boat with Jesus, now Jesus is sleeping. In fact, St. Mark gives us this great detail. Jesus is in the back of the boat, sleeping on a pillow. <laughs> So he's just chilled out, man. And then the disciples are there in the boat. And many of these guys remember our experience. I mean, hardened fishermen, St. Peter and St. Andrew, uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. These are guys who know very well what it is to be on the water. They know the vagaries of, of sailing. <laughs> so you wouldn't think they'd be shaken by a little storm. So that gives you an idea. I mean, this is really a serious storm that's going on. And the waves are crashing against the ship such that the ship is almost being submerged, you know, t uh, turned over. The water's coming into the boat. And finally, the disciples, now it doesn't say uh, who did this. <laughs> My guess is St. Peter. But St. Mark just says the disciples go to Jesus in the back of the boat and they're waking him up. And they say, Lord, do you not care that we are drowning? Now, what's interesting is, well, uh, I'll just remark how, the, how, the, um, how this story concludes, although I'm sure all of you know very well. Jesus stands up in the boat and rebukes the wind and the waves, and the sea is utterly calm. And then he turns to the disciples and says, You men of little faith. So you see, this is an extreme example of exterior desolation, I would say. Uh, <laughs> and sure enough, the disciples, their reaction to it is what many of our reactions is in the face of desolation. Their faith is shaken. Their faith is shaken. They're experiencing doubt. But as one of my, you know, in my, my, my preaching class, one of my friends was just preaching on this gospel the other day. And he remarked on it something that I'd never really considered before, uh, a, a beautiful insight. He said, you know, credit where credit's due. <laughs> we have to uh, acknowledge that at least the disciples went to Jesus when, when they were in the midst of this storm. There's one thing that they did right. You know, they go to him and they say, Lord, do you not care that we are suffering? And so, you know, their question is a little bit wrong-headed. I mean, this is, this is where we can see the seed of their doubt. They're going to the Lord and saying, Yeah, Jesus, we've seen all that you've done for us. We've seen all that you've done for all of these people, the sick, the wounded, the weary. You've been healing them. You've been pouring yourself out for them in love. You've called us from our former lives to follow you, and, and here we are, even if we don't really know why. But now in the midst of this trial, we're coming to you and asking, Jesus, don't you care? Do you, not, do you not love us? Do you not love us enough to save us from this storm? 
Do you not remember that it was you who called us? Don't you realize we, we gave up everything to follow you and now what? We're just going to die out here alone in the midst of the storm on Gennesareth? The one thing that they did right is going to Jesus. Whatever else, this is the point my friend was making in his homily, whatever else they did wrong, <laughs> if you will, after that, one fundamental thing, they did right. They went to Jesus because Jesus is the one with the power to rebuke the winds and the waves. Apparently, some, some uh, I don't know if biblical commentators say this, but some maybe, you know, armchair uh, theologians at least say, uh, you know, why, 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 didn't, why didn't the apostles rebuke the wind and the seas, you know? If they really had faith, they would have just stood up and told the waves and, this, and the wind to calm down. And they wouldn't have had to wake up Jesus from his nice nap. <laughs> I, I, you know, I don't really buy that. I don't know. I mean, the fact that Jesus can stand up and rebuke the weather, that's a clear affirmation of his divinity. This is God. God alone has power over the winds and over the waters because he made them. He's the creator. In the beginning, he divided heaven from earth. So I, I don't think it was the apostles' place to stand up and to try to rebuke the winds and the waves themselves. And Peter probably would have gotten a, a, a nice dunk in the sea for his trouble, you know. <laughs> Although Jesus does promise to the apostles later, if you say, move to this mountain, if you tell it to jump into the water, then it will move, if you have a mustard seed's worth of faith. But I think my friend is, is just right. The apostles did exactly the right thing in going to Jesus. In the midst of the storm, they turned to him. The one thing that they did wrong is by giving, giving any, any space interiorly to these doubts in their heart. Now, there's a difference between simply having a, 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 an experience of doubt, which can be totally involuntary, okay? So we shouldn't feel guilt over our emotions. But any kind of, uh, see, I hesitate to say guilt, uh, but sure, okay, guilt or culpability. Our, 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 our culpability for something comes in when our will is engaged, you know. So we have involuntary reactions all the time. But then if we start entertaining it, if we start, you know, dwelling on it, if we, w with the consent of our free will, we begin to believe it, that's the point when guilt comes in. And so it's one thing in the midst of a storm to have a sort of a fleeting thought. Doesn't, doesn't God care about me? Because then once you have the thought, you can, you can choose how to respond. You can immediately, you know, from the depths of faith, say, God, I know that you care about me. I know that you love me. Help me to love you and to be faithful to you more and more. Or you can turn to the Lord and you can get a little angry. <laughs> you could say, God, don't you care? Come on. Either of those reactions, I mean, one is better than the other. Either is better than a third possible reaction, which is to simply run from the Lord. And that's to act uh, on, the, on the presumption that God, either God does not care or that God is not powerful. And for the disciples in the boat, thankfully they didn't go this route, but what would that be? I don't know, maybe jumping out of the boat <laughs> and trying to swim for shore, you know, leaving Jesus there to fend for himself, right? He's God, he can handle it. <laughs> 
You know, this is a reaction that I very often see uh, in others and in myself at times when uh, events, circumstances seem overwhelming. Um, it's a tendency to what a friend of mine calls sinful self-reliance, which I think is a very insightful term. I think it's something that's perhaps just part of our human condition after original sin. It certainly probably affects some of us more than others just based on our past experiences, especially in childhood, things like that. But the tendency to sinful self-reliance. Basically, when the going gets tough, I can't rely on anybody but myself. When I'm in the midst of a storm, who am I going to trust? Of myself, of course. <laughs> who else can I rely on? But see, part of, the, part of the life, part of the reason for this spiritual life at all like, what's the reason that we're even alive? What's the reason that we're still on earth? Huh? If God's still giving us time, it's because there's still lessons for us to learn. There's still more work to be done in the formation of our souls. So part of the reason that uh, we're still alive and <laughs> we're still in the world and experiencing turmoil and God doesn't just pluck us all up to heaven straight away or we can rest in His peace forever is that we have, to, we have to learn this lesson. We have to learn it not just intellectually, but at the deep level of our heart where it becomes habitual. The lesson that there is no one upon whom I can more certainly rely than the Lord Jesus Christ. And especially in moments of turmoil, and this has got to be real, and this has got to be actual, you know, in moments of real turmoil and trial, in moments where I feel totally overwhelmed, overburdened, I don't know where to turn. And this, the effect of this can be like an interior uh, confusion, sense of darkness, having lost the path. This is some of the language John of the Cross uses incidentally to describe the dark night of the soul. And that's a, that's a whole other can of worms I don't really want to get into because the dark night of the soul is often misunderstood by, by those who haven't really read uh, St. John. But I'll, I will just say this, for St. John of the Cross, the purpose of the dark night of the soul primarily, yes, there's an aspect of purification, but the primary purpose of the dark night of the soul is to inspire in the soul an attitude of faith, which is unshakable. And so the soul has to be purified from all of its attachments, which it, it, it likes to turn to and rely on, you know, in moments, in moments of distress. Um, any, kind of, any kind of crutches that the soul wants to lean on, distractions, worldly pleasures, pleasures of the flesh, all of these different things, which are not ultimately, many of them are not bad, some, some are probably evil, but most of these things are not bad in themselves. But the question we have to ask is, do I want to be relying on myself? Do I want to be relying on this this, you know, random uh, worldly thing that gives me a little bit of pleasure just to distract me from the experience I'm going through? Or do I want to phase it head on? And do I want to rely on the one who really has power over the wind and the waves? Do I want to rely on my friend, my Lord, and my Redeemer, Jesus Christ? So, I suppose in a nutshell, as uh, St. Peter Damien says, in our, one of our readings yesterday in the breviary for his feast day on Friday, we need to claim our identity as sons of God. 
the reading that we read was from, uh, I think, one of St. Peter Damien's friends had written him a letter asking him for some, like, uh, soothing words <laughs> to help him get, come through a period of trial, just like we're talking about. And what St. Peter Damien wrote back to him was, you write to me asking for my consolations when you already have consolation ready at hand. Like, what can I give you that you can't already receive from the Lord? All you have to do is claim your identity as a son of God. And this is who you are. Like, Christian, recognize who you are. You are God's son. You are a brother of Jesus Christ. Called and chosen as one of his disciples and sent out into the world where, yes, there are always storms. There's always resistance and opposition. It's an imperfect world, sometimes very imperfect. And we're imperfect sons. But you know what? The love of God, which has called us from the beginning and which has sent us out now to do his work, that love is unshakable. That love is absolutely unshakable and unchanging and unconditional. And that's a rock on which we can rest and on which we can lean. And so, no matter how hard the winds are blowing us or the waves are breaking, we just plant ourselves against the rock that is Christ. And no matter what doubts are arising in our hearts, you know, we can be terribly afraid. But we have to make the interior act of the will by which we say, Jesus, I love you, and I know that you love me. I know by faith that you love me. And I choose to remain with you. I was talking with a friend this week who was also going through some stuff. <laughs> and uh, he, was, you know, and he, he, he read up this gospel passage that we've been talking about from Mark. And I, we were just reflecting on it together. And I said, you know, it's, it's so much better to be with Jesus in the boat than to be back on the shore. Just think about it. Jesus gathered around himself his 12 closest friends and they set out on the sea together. No matter what happens on the boat, you know, wouldn't you rather be there than be left back on the shore with, in the midst of all the crowds, all these people who'd come to Jesus. Yes, they came to him seeking healing, but they didn't really follow him. They didn't really remain with him. Like the disciples, Jesus called them to remain with him and then to go out. So it's better to be with Jesus in the boat, no matter what happens to us, than to be away from him. And that's worth recalling. It's easier to say than to do, believe me, I know. But it's worth recalling in our moments of, of deep distress. Am I with Jesus? Is Jesus with me? Don't answer based on your subjective experience, on your feelings at that moment, because that's not a sure guide. Answer rather based on the certainty of faith. Am I in a state of grace? Am I baptized? Am I a son or a daughter of God? <laughs> if the answer to those questions is yes, Jesus is with you, man, closer than you are to yourself. That's something on which you can truly, truly rely. All right, enough about that. I have to head back to the seminary. I'm walking a big loop kind of outside of our grounds and uh, got to get back. But I want to spend a few minutes talking about today's feast day, which is a feast day of a piece of furniture. Did you know that we are called to be saints? What is a saint? Well, 
A saint means one who is holy. So I have a friend who works at the seminary, and uh, she was telling us yesterday, today's her birthday, so she was telling us yesterday that when she was a girl, you know, she, uh, she had all these saint friends, <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, and when she, as she was growing up, she learned that uh, everyone has a patron saint, not just their name saint, but the name, the name, the, the what, what am I saying? The day, the saint on whose feast day they were born is their, your patron saint, you know. And so she was all excited. She said, oh, I'd love to have St. Philomena or St. Elizabeth or whatever. And she looks at the calendar and she goes, well, where, how did I get off? How did I get stuck with a chair for my patron saint? Because today, my friends, is the feast day of the chair of St. Peter at Antioch. Now... Why in the world do we celebrate a chair as a saint? <laughs> well, kind of a trick question. Um, <laughs> obviously, we don't. But the chair of St. Peter, this refers to his episcopal seat, or as we often call it, his cathedra, um, which, from which we get the word cathedral. You know? So a cathedral church is not just a, a big fancy church, like just any any church can randomly be called a cathedral if it's fancy enough. No, a cathedral is a church where the bishop has his seat, where the bishop has his cathedra. And so you'll see it in my diocese of Portland. You know, if you go to St. Mary's Cathedral in Portland, you walk in, there's a big fancy chair uh, <laughs> in, right in, you know, in the center of the, of the apse in the sanctuary behind the altar. And this is where His Grace, the Archbishop, sits when he celebrates Mass. When he preaches, well, usually he preaches standing, but the bishop has the privilege of preaching while seated. Why? Because in the ancient Roman world, um, being seated was the position of authority. You know, a magistrate, a, a, a civil judge, would be seated to give a sentence. Very often, uh, one who has the, the position of teaching would teach seated, and his students would be all kind of um, on the... I either sitting on the floor around him and he'd be on a chair or they'd be kind of milling around standing and listening to what he has to say. So this is something that the church has adopted from the Romans. Like much of our tradition, it comes from, from Rome, being seated as the position of authority. And so the bishop's cathedra, his chair, is like his throne. It's the symbol of his, yeah, of his authority over that area, over that, um, that local church. Now, St. Peter, in the, in the older Roman calendar, has two chair feasts. <laughs> One uh, was back in January. That's the Feast of the Chair of St. Peter at Rome. But before Peter was the Bishop of Rome, he was actually the Bishop of the city of Antioch. So now, February 22nd, we celebrate the Chair of St. Peter at Antioch. And in the new Roman calendar from the 60s, when they kind of simplified a lot of these feasts, they combined those two feasts into just one today, which is simply called the Chair of St. Peter. But it's interesting to, uh, to note the connection to Antioch. Of course, the Acts of the Apostles tell us that Antioch was the city where we were first called Christians. Before that, we were just kind of considered weird, not sort of unobservant Jews. <laughs> but in Antioch, we were first given the name of Christians, the followers of Christ. St. Peter 
was the first bishop of Antioch. Now he went to Antioch to preach the gospel and to convert the people. In fact, a lot of the early Christians fled Jerusalem to go to Antioch after the martyrdom of, of St. Stephen, um, who you can read about in the Acts of the Apostles. So a lot of them fled to kind of seek refuge in Antioch, which was a big cultural center. Um, you know, it was, it was, I think it was called the Rome of the East or something like that. I mean, it, this was a, a very important city for the Roman Empire, culturally and, and strategically. So St. Peter went there to preach the gospel of Christ. And as the golden legend has it, you know, my favorite source, <laughs> while he was there in Antioch, uh, Theophilus, interesting name, means lover of God. Theophilus, who was the governor of the city, called Peter to come before him. And he was probably seated. And St. Peter comes in. And he says, who are you and what are you doing in my city, basically? Stirring up all this consternation by preaching the name of this Jesus. And so St. Peter proceeds to preach the gospel to him. And, uh, you know, the gospel of life and try to convert him. Well, Theophilus is not having any of it and he throws Peter in prison. But then, not long after, St. Paul comes to Antioch. He goes before Theophilus, the governor, and he speaks on his uh, co-worker and his friend Peter's behalf. And Theophilus is sort of, I guess, half listening, <laughs> but He's very struck by one thing St. Paul says, which is that St. Peter, by the power of the name of Jesus, has been known to raise people from the dead. A miracle is always uh, a motive of credibility for the apostles, right? For all the saints. So Theophilus, his ears perk up at that. And he says, well, my son, my young boy, recently died. And so if your friend Peter can raise him from the dead with the name of Jesus, then I'll I'll believe, and I'll release him from prison. And so they go collect the emperor's body of the, of the, sorry, of the governor's son, Theophilus, his son, bring him to Peter in prison, and Peter prays over him in the name of Jesus Christ, and the boy, he gets up and walks. So St. Peter is set free, Theophilus converts, and Peter becomes the bishop of that city, the first bishop of Antioch. Then later on, he goes from there to Rome, where he and St. Paul both uh, found the Church of Rome, and he becomes the first bishop of Rome. And thus he becomes the, the first pope, and the, uh, the protogenitor of all the popes who follow him up to the present day. So we celebrate the chair of St. Peter. In celebrating his chair, as you can guess, because it's a symbol of authority, we celebrate his episcopal authority. And since it's St. Peter, not just any other bishop, uh, he has a very, very special place in the life of the church. And this comes from all the way back in his walk with Jesus as one of his apostles. When, you remember this moment, it's in St. Matthew's Gospel around like chapter 19, I want to say. I hope that's right. Uh, I'm not sure. But he, Jesus gathers all of his disciples around him and he says, All right, who do men say that I am? Who are people saying that I am? And they all throw out all these wild guesses, you know, saying, well, some people say that you're Elijah uh, com coming again, you know, to signify the end of the world. And some people say that you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. And all, you know, so they have all these kind of wild guesses people are making. But Peter, out of all the, out of, out of the whole 12, 
Peter is the only one who gives the correct answer. He says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Which is really a remarkable confession of faith. Christ, that is, you are the Messiah. You, Jesus, you're the one we've been waiting for. All, at all of Jewish history, <laughs> we've been waiting for you. But also the Son of the living God. That is to say, you are God. Not only are you the Messiah, you're not just a man, you're not just another prophet or someone whom God has sent. You are God in the flesh. You are God made man, God incarnate, come among us. And so because Peter makes this remarkable and, and accurate and beautiful confession of faith, Jesus says to him, yes, I mean, you've spoken rightly of me. You've said who I am. And I say to you that you are Petros, Peter, or in Aramaic, Kephas. And it means rock. <laughs> you are Peter. You are rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. So Jesus makes Peter the foundation of the church. And he even says to him, I give to you the power to bind and to loose. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is what we call, in, in, usually in the Catholic tradition, the power of the keys, which Jesus gave to St. Peter. So St. Peter occupied the first place among all the apostles. This is the doctrine of Petrine primacy, which is just to say Peter had the first place. From the very beginning, Peter was first among the apostles. And we can see this in, you know, all the early centuries of the church, well, even in the, as early as the Acts of the Apostles, right? When St. Paul has his miraculous conversion on the road to Damascus, he goes out into Arabia for a while, and he's kind of following in the footsteps of Elijah, and he goes out into the desert and prays. But then what does he do? He goes up to Jerusalem to consult with the others who were called before him, namely St. Peter. This is the Council of Jerusalem. St. Peter was there and Paul, and also, I believe, James and John. So St. Paul goes up to meet with these other apostles and to receive the handshake of friendship from St. Peter. That is to say, to get, to get his, his, his apostolic blessing to go out and to preach the gospel. He wanted to submit his apostolic work before the one who had the primacy, the one who had the authority over all the apostles. All the apostles are predecessors of our modern-day bishops. They're the first bishops. But St. Peter is the first pope, the one who has authority over them all, supreme and universal authority over the church given to him by Christ. And so thus we sing in this morning's hymn at Lauds this beautiful verse, Peter, blessed shepherd, hearken to our cry, and with a word unloose our guilty chain. Thou who hast power to open the gates on high to men below, and power to shut them fast again. Praise, blessing, majesty through endless days be to the Trinity immortal given, who in pure unity profoundly sways eternally alike all things in earth and heaven. Amen. It is worthwhile, though, I think, to consider not only the Episcopal chair of St. Peter, the cathedra, you know, the symbol of his authority, but just for the purposes of our devotion, for our prayer, as we celebrate this feast, 
Think about the other chairs of St. Peter. <laughs> and I don't just mean Antioch and Rome. But think about during the life of Christ. Think about, for example, to jive with uh, our earlier talk about the boat, think about St. Peter's seat on the boat in the midst of the storm. Think about St. Peter's privileged seat at the Last Supper. Most likely not a chair, <laughs> but surely he had a place of honor, seated, reclining really, near our Lord. At the table when Jesus celebrated the first Mass, when he gave them his body and blood, and he washed their feet and named them his priests. Think about St. Peter's seat in the courtyard of the house of the Roman governor when he denied our Lord, when Jesus was brought before Pontius Pilate to make an account of himself. And Peter's waiting outside. He's warming himself by the fire, surrounded by the Roman centurions and the servants of Pilate. And they hear his accent and they say, aren't you one of Jesus' followers too? Three times he denies him. I tell you, I have never known the man. But then think of Peter's rehabilitation. His seat beside the Lord on the beach after the Lord is risen from the dead. He and the other disciples have gone fishing. They've basically said, we don't know what to do. <laughs> we'll go back to our old way of life. They go out, go fishing, they haven't caught anything. Then they see Jesus on the shore. And Peter gets out of the boat and goes to him, swims to him, without thinking, like so much of what Peter does. <laughs> Immediately, he goes to Jesus. And when the others have arrived later on at the shore, Jesus says, Venite, prandete. This wonderful saying, we have it on one of our stained glass windows in the chapel, which I love to sit across from in the morning and contemplate, <laughs> because this grand-sounding Latin phrase means come, have breakfast. <laughs> Venite prandete. And he has some fish cooking on a fire and some bread. Think of Peter's seat there next to the Lord. Even knowing what he had done, his denial of Jesus at the moment when it mattered most, Jesus invites him to come and sit at his right. Jesus is not revoking the commission he gave to Peter to be the foundation of the church. He has him come sit at his right. He feeds him, the Eucharistic imagery here, you know, feeds him with the bread. And then three times he asks him, Peter, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me more than these? Tend my lambs. He's reaffirming the commission he gave to Peter in the beginning to tend the church, to guard the church. So as we reflect on the mini chairs of St. Peter, <laughs> the chair of his authority, his seat at the right side of Christ, at the key moments of their lives, we give thanks for his intercession for us in heaven. Give thanks for the ministry of the bishops and of the Pope continuing down to this day. The Pope is the sign of our Christian unity, you know. Whether you, uh, whether you like him or not, <laughs> whether you agree with everything he says or not, the Pope is the symbol of unity of the Christian faith. That's the, 
That's what separates Catholics from all pretenders. <laughs> Do you submit to the Roman Pontiff with religious submission of mind and will, as to Peter himself, as to the Lord himself? If so, you belong to the unbroken tradition of Christian faith, going back to that, that seaside, going back really to the moment when Jesus established Peter as the rock on which he built the church. So we'll give thanks. We'll give thanks for that apostolic continuity which our Lord in His wisdom established. Knowing that, knowing that He willed to save souls and to unite them to Himself until the very end of the world. For that reason, He established a church. He established a line of bishops. And He established, yes, the line of popes, the successors of Peter. So we give thanks for all of them. And we ask St. Peter in particular to pray for us today that we may, like him, go to Jesus immediately, especially in moments of turmoil and distress and when the storm is stirring up and it seems like we're going to be drowned, to go to Jesus and to tell him, Lord, you know that I love you. Help me to love you more. Help me to believe more firmly. Help me to cling to you and never to yield. I'm afraid I don't have time to talk much about Shakespeare today or do a theology segment uh, per se, although mostly we've been doing that already. <laughs> I'll just mention that I've been reading a play called Titus Andronicus this week, and it is, I, I do not recommend it. <laughs> not because the style is poor. I mean, it's, it's very good. It's a high tragedy, but my goodness, it is a dark grim, difficult play. So if you, if you like that sort of thing, if you feel uh, inclined to read it, by all means, you'll probably enjoy it. I've been finding it difficult to get through. And uh, I haven't finished it yet. I'm on to the last act. Hopefully I'll get a chance to finish that today or tomorrow. And then we go on to Romeo and Juliet, another great tragedy, one that I've read several times before. That's a very famous play, you know, and I've read it in uh, in various English literature classes. But I'm looking forward to reading it again, uh, just for fun. So, not much more to say on that front. Um, going ahead, uh, this next week we have the beginning of Lent before us. Uh, very, very soon, this coming Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. Tomorrow, this Sunday, is Quinquagesima, which marks 50 days before Easter, as you know. So, coming up on Ash Wednesday, we have here at the seminary a day of recollection uh, with no classes, although we do have conferences, which I always think is a bit strange. You know, coming from a Carmelite background, uh, usually our days of recollection were simply, the only thing we'd have in common at all was Holy Mass, and the rest of the day would really be on your own for personal prayer. But I'm living now in a diocesan seminary where they do things a little bit differently. <laughs> And uh, so we're going to have a couple conferences throughout the day, spiritual conferences. And I believe we'll also be praying the, the Divine Office together, as well as the Mass. Um, and also, my day of recollection will be interrupted in the evening by the arrival of my vocation director, who I'm going to pick up from San Francisco Airport. He'll be coming in uh, Ash Wednesday night. So the Portland seminarians and I are, are, are arranging a little uh, soup and bread supper to have with our vocation director when he arrives. So we'll host that for him Wednesday night. Um, then he'll be here 
uh, for a, a meeting of all of our vocation directors on Thursday, as well as a mass of candidacy, which I've talked about before. And then on Friday, we'll each have one-on-one -on -one meetings with him. In particular for me, um, this coming week is my evaluation with the seminary formation team. They're voting on me on Monday as to whether they uh, wish me to continue in formation another year. So offer a little Hail Mary for that if you would, that God's will be done. And then on Friday, we'll be meeting my vocation director, my formation director, and myself will meet to go over the vote and to discuss the results of that evaluation, um, all their various commendations and recommendations for me and, and, and so on. And probably also to discuss my upcoming pastoral year and where um, the vocation director wants me to go, what parish I hope to find out <laughs> what parish maybe he wants me to go to for the next year but, but I, I, you know I don't know if that's on the table or not maybe it'll still be later on that I'll hear about that whatever happens um, I'm sure it'll be a busy week <laughs> once again even the day of recollection has much activity my spirit is longing for a retreat and um, fortunately not too much longer before I, I hope to be able to have one because after this week, well, then we have midterms. Then we have a little break of, I think, four or five days. And I'm going to try to arrange to go over to my old monastery in San Jose, Mount St. Joseph, Carmelite Monastery, and perhaps just stay for a few days to rest in the Lord and recover <laughs> from, oh, the exhaustion of the month of February. <laughs> but again... Just to tie this up in a nice knot, and I really mean this, it is better to be in the boat with the Lord than to be away from Him on the shore. This is uh, something I'm, I'm hoping to share with the guys who are here for this discernment retreat. You know, We have to be realistic about the priesthood and about, about seminary life. We don't want to give a false impression or kind of a fairy tale version of our life. I mean, this is a difficult life, you know? And... Um, Okay, in, in, in many exterior ways, uh, we have an easier life than a lot of people, and I want to acknowledge that. I mean, we have a lot provided for us through the generosity of our benefactors. We're very, very blessed. But in many ways, it's, it's also a very difficult life. And uh, in, in, in any vocation where you're going to follow the Lord, you have to expect that you're going to suffer. That's just that's part of what it means to be Christian. Following the Lord entails suffering. Suffering at, basically on three fronts. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world opposes us just as it opposed Christ. So, you know, if he was crucified, we can't expect to be treated any better than the Master. So we can expect to be persecuted and reviled and all of that along with it. Also from our own flesh, you know, the flesh wars against the spirit, and so part of the Christian life is to, um, to fight that battle, to fight the battleground of your own heart, try to establish the primacy of the Lord in every aspect of our being, which at times is difficult and discouraging. And then, of course, at the hands of the enemy of our human nature, the devil, who wants to oppose all that we do, who would love nothing more than to see us end up in misery and despair for all eternity, and who wants to oppose the Lord of life whose will is for us to be with Him in heaven at peace and enjoying eternal beatitude. 
So yeah, we have some powerful enemies. <laughs> the world, the flesh, the devil. Uh, wouldn't want to be against those three, that axis of evil, except for one thing. We have an ally who is far more powerful, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're in his court. He's the captain of our team, you know, and we're following him. And so if we just cling to him, he is the source of our hope. He's the foundation of our hope. The first letter of St. Peter, chapter 3, verse 15, I believe, and it, this is very fitting since we've been talking a lot about Peter today, right? In his first epistle, uh, he says, always be ready to give evidence for the hope that is within you. And this is not an exhortation to a kind of a Pollyannish Christianity, you know, where um, we, everything's just smiles and bubbles all the time. No, but to be ready to give evidence for the hope that is in us. What's the evidence for our hope? Nothing but the life and the testimony of Jesus Christ himself. He is our hope. He is our joy. He is our peace. He is our certainty. He is the ground of our faith. He is the reason. He's the one who gave us our vocation. He's the one who calls us. He's the reason that we persevere. He's the reason for our lives. And so, in particular, I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting on discernment and vocation this week as all these, these 36 men are here listening for the Lord's voice, calling them, discerning where and how He's calling them to serve and to sacrifice and to make a gift of their lives to His church. And as, as you know, there's four primary vocations. There's um, married life, by which you make a gift of yourself to another person, solely, uniquely. Then priesthood, by which you make a gift of yourself to God and to God's people. Then there's consecrated religious life, as a, a consecrated layman or laywoman, like a monk or a nun, by which you make a gift of yourself to God more or less exclusively, sort of more like a spiritual marriage between yourself and God, where your vocation is not primarily expressed in service to God's people, but in loving contemplation of His face. And then finally, the generous single life, a vocation to an active apostolate in the world, where you pour yourself out to serve God's people. These are the four primary the primary vocations, right? And within each one you can be called to a number of different ways of living it out, different professions, different states in life, whatever. These are the primary, primary ones. The meaning of all of these vocations is Christ. The meaning of all of them is, I mean, you could sum it up this way. This is a little, little Carmelite uh, uh, teaching that I love because <laughs> it's very simple. The meaning of all these vocations could be summed up as this, to know and love God and to make Him known and loved. And so in the first place, subjectively, if you will, to know God and to love Him better, more and more, each day. And then to make Him known and loved, whether that's to your spouse and to your children as a, a husband and father or a wife and mother, or to the flock of God's children who is entrusted to you as a priest, as a pastor, as a bishop, as Bishop Daly of Spokane was telling us last night. Or if you're a consecrated religious, to know and love God in your prayer, in your study, and to make Him known and loved 
by your brothers or sisters in the community and those perhaps who come to you for spiritual direction, things like that. Or again, as a generous single person living in the world consecrated to God in that way, and to make him known and loved in your apostolate, whatever that may be. All of these forms of life have that in common. They're centered on and, and, and built upon the rock that is Jesus Christ. And they have their roots deep in the heart of Jesus, which nourishes these vocations with his love. His love it is that impels us, that strengthens us, that enables us to live our life, whatever it may be and whatever sufferings and sacrifices it may entail. All these vocations will entail suffering because, as we talked about last week on the Feast of St. Valentine, love, true love, always entails suffering. Because a yes always entails a number of no's, doesn't it? If we give a committed and unconditional yes to Christ, it will entail often saying no to the world, saying no to our flesh, (laughs) saying no always to the devil. But we can be assured that these that these no's and that the suffering that results from them in the world will redound to our eternal glory and our beatitude in heaven when our Lord receives us to sit with Him and with St. Peter and with all the saints in eternal glory. Now, I really have to go. <laughs> i got to go inside. I, I have to finish up my breviary. And, um, I, I ha- but first I have to go uh, make sure that everyone knows where the chapel is for confessions. My friends, may God bless you. May this week be a time of ever-deepening encounter with the Lord, who is our peace and our love and our certainty and our joy, our only joy. And may you hear His voice ever more clearly in your prayer and in the daily circumstances of life, directing you to that particular place He has prepared for you in His kingdom from all eternity. If you've already discerned your vocation, (laughs) then may He strengthen you in your commitment and in your resolve to live it out as best as you can. And if you're still discerning, then I pray that the Lord will grant you the grace of interior clarity, serenity, and confidence to follow wherever He leads. May the Lord bless you. May He protect you from all evil. May He bring you to everlasting life. Amen.